And so what we usually do in the month of January is we take a few sermons to orient ourselves, kind of focus back on our identity as a church. And what we did at the very beginning of January, centered around prayer week, was the fact that, that we are called to be a praying people. And so we did two sermons on prayer. And then I wanted to spend a couple of sermons to talk about giving and that we are a giving people. And so Neil opened that up for us last week with some general principles. And, and if you weren't here, if you didn't get an opportunity, uh, here, is, here is the gist of his sermon. God is the owner of everything. So whether it's in my bank account or in your pocket, it's God's and not mine and it's not yours. And God is, so not only does God own everything, but God is also a lavish, generous giver. We see that in what's called common grace, where he causes the rain and the sun, he causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on people who don't even know him and people, in fact, who, who are hostile to his existence. That's called common grace. If you, want, uh, if you want an example of God being generous, just look at the fact that he gives life and breath to people who curse him with that life and breath. That's called common grace. But then we also see his generosity in special grace. And that is the grace that draws people to salvation in Christ alone. So we also see God's generosity not just in giving us the sunrise in the Grand Canyon, but also in giving of his own son Jesus. That's called special grace. And so all of that is summarized best for me in terms of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 and 15 that I'll read for you quickly. This is the gist of Neil's sermon Last week, I have to find it. There we go. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, because Jesus has conquered sin and broken the power of sin in our lives, we are now compelled to live not for ourselves but for him. And that, that captures the fourth value of Grace Fellowship Church, which is we want to be a people, we aim to be a people who give ourselves away in mercy, service, evangelism, and stewardship. Those are, that's the fourth mission value. Today, I'm going to focus primarily on financial stewardship and what we do with our wealth, what we do with our money. Why? Uh, this is not something, if you've been around the church for a while, this is not something we talk about a whole lot, especially from the pulpit. Uh, I think this can be, because it can be a particularly painful subject for many, um, this is a subject that comes with a lot of shameful feelings for some. And so we want to be um, tender to that. This is also a subject that maybe conjures up for you, you know, pictures of the greedy televangelist preying on the needy widow. Uh, we, that, I, think, I think Satan has used those types of people to hinder gospel, biblical-oriented sermons about giving, right? Because we're, we're hung up on people who are, pl- who are playing on emotions um, to, to extort. And that's not what we want to do. And so we want, to, we want to acknowledge that out front. But we also want to acknowledge this, that Jesus had a lot to say about money. And for Jesus, right, you can even capture it in Matthew six twenty one, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that, 
verse comes in the midst of a long passage where Jesus is talking about our wealth and what we do with it and how we feel about it. And what Jesus is saying is that, the, that our wealth, what we do with our money, is an index of our character. It is an index. It is a pointer to what we want the most. It's what our hearts are anchored on. And the reason Jesus talks about wealth so much is because Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about what your heart is resting in, what my heart is trusting in. And so he brings up the subject of wealth a lot because he knows that nothing like money can, can divert us and pull us away. Not that money is not evil in and of itself. It is a tool. Um, it's a tool that helps us with our security. It's a tool that helps us meet our needs. And because of that, it can so easily, right, the love of money. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And so um, we need to talk about it. We need to address this area of financial stewardship. And so we're going to do that uh, looking at Second Corinthians chapter 9. Verses nine, uh, excuse me, verses six through fifteen. Let's give attention to God's word. The point. This is the apostle Paul talking. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful. Giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. Father, as we talk about um, what can be a touchy subject, but a subject that your word addresses, Lord, we pray. Uh, we know, God, we acknowledge that, that no area of our life is untainted by sin. And that no area of our life is off limits to your transforming power and grace. And that includes what we consider typically to be ours, our stuff, our wealth. Lord, even this area is open to you, and, so, and it's open to correction from your word. And so, God, we pray that you would help us understand rightly from your word what we are to do with our wealth. What is it, what is it that brings most glory to you? Uh, God, would you work through your word 
by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little background before we jump in. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are Paul's plea for the, to the Corinthian church to give money. And what's going on, if you were to go back and you were to read 2 Corinthians 8, you would find that the Christians in Jerusalem, so Corinth is here, Jerusalem is like down here, and there's a drought, there's a famine in Jerusalem. And so what Paul is doing is he makes his way around the Mediterranean, he is collecting money from other churches on his way back to Jerusalem to support their needs. And he's already been, so here's Corinth, here's Macedonia up here. He's already been through Macedonia, and as he writes to Corinth, he tells them that the Macedonians, and we're going to talk about them in just a little bit, have given money. And so now he's pointing at Corinth, and he's saying, I want you guys to do the same. All right? And so that, they are giving to a specific need in a specific place, a dire need for for an impoverished people. And so um, that's the specific situation that Paul is dealing with. When we get to this end in 2 Corinthians 9, I think we can pull, even though we're not going to be talking necessarily about a specific situation, I think we can pull some general principles about Christian giving out of this section. And so, um, and all under this heading uh, that Neil began for us last week, that the gospel of free grace enables us, causes us, frees us up to be generous givers because God has been generous with us We can be generous with others, and that includes how we give. That includes our money. And so first let's look at uh, two principles that Paul gives us for Christian giving, and they come out of verses 6 and 7. Paul says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the, the first principle for Christian giving is this, be liberal. I realize liberal is a bad word for many uh, in the room, but when it comes to giving, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, God is liberal. Okay, uh, If you go back to Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells the story, the parable of the sower, God is the one who is sowing the seed. And if And if this man, if this sower were working for you, you would fire him because he is throwing seed everywhere, right? When God sows the seed, some is falling on the path, wasted. Some is falling in the rocky soil, wasted. Some falls in the weeds, wasted. And some of it falls in good soil, right? But the point is this, God is liberal. He's He's just throwing the seed out there. He's a generous giver. And so can we be generous. We can be liberal in our giving. My tendency, and maybe your tendency, is if I give too much, I won't have enough. That's typically the way we think, the law of diminishing returns. If I, if I give too much, right, it's just simple, basic math. If I give too much, then I won't have enough for me and for my family, But that basic math does not take God's economy into effect. So Paul, Paul, to counter that tendency in my heart, comes with this agricultural proverb, this principle. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And if you sow bountifully, generously, literally with blessing, 
then you will reap with blessing. You will reap generously. So kind of picture picture what Paul is doing there. This is, this is the farmer's answer, okay? If you just throw out five or six seeds in this little area, well, you're going to get some growth, but you're only going to see it in this little area. But if you disperse the seed widely, yes, you could lose some. The birds could eat some. But the possibility of greater harvest is there. If you, if you keep your sowing to this small area, if you, give to this, if, you, if you only give this much, you can only expect this much in return. But if you sow widely, broadly, generously, then according to God's math, according to God's economy, you actually will experience a greater reward. And we'll talk about what that means because it's not what prosperity theology says. Okay, so we'll talk some about that. But our tendency is, if I give too much, I won't have enough. God says, so liberally. Be a liberal. All right, that's an may not be the only time I tell you to do that, but be a liberal, right? Give liberally. This is not a market economy. It's God's economy. And then the second thing, the second principle that he says is be cheerful. So Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, right? So, so giving actually begins at home. Each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not under compulsion. What does he say? Um, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So, so reluctantly, right? If you're giving reluctantly, it means you're under this internal pressure, you know, kind of what I was talking about, my tendency to like, oh, I just got to, yeah, I don't want to give, I want to hold on to it, right? That, that, that when I let the money go out of my tightly clenched fingers, I'm grieving over its loss already, right? That's a reluctant giver. And then... Uh, one who gives under compulsion is, is the one who gives because he feels he, he has to conform to society or the community or under law. This would be why Christianity is not socialism, right? Socialism demands that you give your fair share. Paul says that's not how this community things work. Yes, you should give your fair share, but you have the freedom to decide what that is. You have the freedom. You and the Lord, before you come to the worship gathering, you decide what are you able to give, and you give it. And so not reluctantly, not under compulsion, both of those mentalities, both of those heart sets show that money still has the power, right? Whether I'm giving reluctantly or under compulsion, money is still controlling me rather than me controlling money or God controlling me. Does that make sense? And so what Paul says is actually the opposite. Not reluctant, not forced, but cheerful. This word cheerful, it's where we get our word hilarious from. Right? When you think hilarious, somebody who, who freely laughs. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the gist here. That's the image that Paul wants us to see when it comes to our giving. We are cheerful. And so let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8, just one chapter ahead, verses 1 through 4. Paul's going to describe the churches in Macedonia to the north of Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now that sentence right there deserves probably a sermon all on its own because what Paul is saying is that these Macedonian Christians are afflicted by something, probably societal pressure. They're probably being persecuted. But as a result, they're also in extreme poverty. And yet, they have overflowing joy. Now, that does not make sense to me. I don't know how to be in extreme poverty and have overflowing joy at the same time. But these people do. And Paul says that God, in his grace, has brought those two things together. Their extreme poverty, their overflowing joy. He's brought them together, and they have given generously. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Listen to this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging us. I mean, that's a, that's a cheerful giver. Right? Paul didn't go to the Macedonians and they were like, Man, Paul, God, what do you want now? Um... Here, I got 10. He's got 20. Take that. All right, get off our backs. No, no, no. When Paul came to them, they said, well, we don't have a lot, but whatever we can do, we want to help. Whatever we can do. Here, take this. Take that. Take this. Hold on. I'll call so-and-so. They can bring what they've got. Begging us for the opportunity to relieve the saints in Jerusalem, to relieve the Jerusalem Christians. That was their mindset. That's the mindset of a cheerful giver. If you've ever, um, my first exposure to Scrooge, sadly, was not through Charles Dickens, was through Walt Disney. But I've read, I've read A Christmas Carol since then. Um, but, right, if you remember Scrooge McDuck, or many of you, if you, at the beginning of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is the man, he is the stingy man under compulsion. He hates Christmas. He won't even give a bonus to his faithful uh, helper, Bob Cratchit. You know, in the, in the Disney movie, um, Bob Cratchit goes to, like, warm his hands on a, some coal, like, start a fire. And Scrooge is like, no, that costs too much money. Right? And then, over the course of the story, as Scrooge is confronted by three different ghosts, Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, when he see, what those ghosts cause him to do is they, they cause him to see the control that wealth is operating on Scrooge's heart. And how does, he, how does he wake up the next morning, Christmas morning? He's giddy. And he's, he's just throwing money everywhere. You know, like he's giving food away. He makes sure not only that Bob Cratchit gets a meager Christmas bonus, but that he has all the food uh, that he could possibly have and gets to join him for the feast. It's this dramatic transformation from somebody who, who's white-knuckled on their wealth to a cheerful and glad, generous giver. That's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to be, and I think that's what Paul is calling us to be. So those two principles are uh, be liberal in your giving and be cheerful in your giving. Now, since those two things fight against every inclination of my heart, 
I know it shocks you that I'm not a cheerful person. Uh, since those two things fight against every inclination of my sinful heart, how in the world do we get there? And the answer comes in the next verse, and it is God's, it is the promise of Christian giving. Here's what Paul says. Verse 8. For God is able, the word able is the same word we use for dynamite, it's power. For God is powerful to make, I want you to listen to the the lavish, over-the-top language Paul uses. God is powerful to make all grace overflow to you so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may overflow in every good work. Christianity is not a philosophy of scarcity. Right? Um, this, is, this is a fault of Western culture, and it's this, materialism. Now, when I say materialism... Um, many of us think we're just talking about wealth, but materialism is actually bigger than that. It's a worldview that says all that there is is the material world. We just have the box. There is nothing outside of the material. There's no, there's no invisible world. There's no supernatural. It's just invisible. It's, it's just the, the visible material world. And because of that, we've only got what we've got. So we're running out of water. We're running out of oil. We're running out of coal. Right? It's, a, it's a constant cycle of scarcity. We only have so much, and so there's just not enough. That, that, is, that is the Western mindset. That comes to us from the Enlightenment, um, but that is not Christianity. Christianity says, no, materialism, the box, is not all there is. That there is someone outside of the box. And that someone outside of the box is able to make all grace abound to you all the time and in every way. That is, that is the promise of Christian giving. What does that mean? Let's look at the... God is able to make all grace abound to you. That word abound could also say overflow. Uh, so... Here's how the promise works, kind of a three-step promise. God's grace will overflow to us. And when Paul says all grace, this this is against, contra to prosperity theology. All grace does not mean physical blessings, material blessings. It can mean that. It most certainly means spiritual blessings. And just as an example, so that you can think about this, why it doesn't mean that, is he's just used the Macedonians who aren't rich. Right? God has caused grace to overflow through them, and so they gave of what they were able to give. But they gave out of their extreme poverty. And so what prosperity theology, if you're not familiar with it, says, if you bless or if you have enough faith, then God will bless you, that you're going to have all this nice stuff. Right? You'll have the big house. You'll have the nice car, etc., etc. That is not the promise of Christianity. That's not what Paul is promising here. But Paul is saying you will have what you need. Right? So keep, let's keep going. God will make all grace overflow to you so that having all sufficiency. 
Another way to translate that word is contentment. Basically what Paul is saying is, as God overflows his grace to you, you will have everything you need. All sufficiency in all things. Everything you need. You won't have less. You won't have more. Does that sound too good to be true? I can't ever think, Kevin, of a time when I'll have just enough. I mean, maybe some of you in here can think about, well, we really do have more than we need. But I think there are many of us who struggle because we don't feel like we have enough. And so I want you to hear the good news from the Apostle Paul um, that he is able to make all grace overflow to you so that you will have everything that you need. And it may be just as a plug, that financial peace plays a part in that, helping you figure out how to take the graces that God has given you and use them so that you have everything that you need. Because if you are under a pile of debt, you are losing lots of the physical material blessings that you could be making use of. Right? It's, it's kind of like a black hole in your wallet, and you know this. Right? It's sucking a little bit out, or maybe a lot out, every time. God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you will have everything that you need. What's the result? Then we overflow in good works to others. And so we are channels. This is what Neil talked about last week with our time, treasure, and talent. Even materially, with our treasure, we are channels of God's grace. We are not cul-de-sacs, right? You know the difference. You know what a cul-de-sac is. It's that big round loop at the end of a street, right? We're not, we're not there in the middle of the cul-de-sac like, yeah, grabbing all the blessings. All right, they're all for me, right? No, we're channels. Basically, as God's grace overflows to us, right, our cups are filled up, and then we pour out more on others. That is, that is the promise of Christian giving, that God will meet our needs so that we can overflow in grace to others, so that we can overflow in good works to others. That's, that's the promise of Christian giving. And then the result. What is the result? Verse 10, He, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So that is a re- repeating of the promise that we just heard, that God will supply us with what we need and even multiply so that we can sow and increase the harvest more. And notice, what's it a harvest of? It's not, it's not a harvest of our material blessings. It's a harvest of righteousness, that we will grow more and more in righteousness the more and more we give. So God's blessings are not so we can have the billion-dollar house on top of the hill and three cars, right? That's not, that's not the goal. The goal is that really that our righteousness would be harvested, that we would grow in righteousness, in Christ-likeness, which means uh, in mercy towards others. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So there's that promise again, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So what's the end game? What's the end game of our giving? The glory of God. 
Yes, the needs of other people, the needs of the poor will be met. Paul says as much. If you keep going in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, the ministry of the servants is, is supplying their needs, but it's not only that, it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So not only are needs being met, not only are our brother and, brothers and sisters helped, but God is being praised in Macedonia, in Corinth, in Jerusalem. And not only there, but everywhere. And so the result of Christian giving is, yes, needs will be met. And it's that Christians are knit together. He talks about the fellowship of this service. Will somebody step outside and listen for the voice that comes following the siren? Thank you, Colin. Um, So needs will be met. Christians will be drawn together, right? In the ancient world, it would have been unheard of for Gentiles in Corinth to give money to Jews in Jerusalem. And yet, here they were being brought together over a need. That's what Christian giving does. But ultimately, it gives glory to God. God will be glorified. Let me just wrap it up with some some take-home applications I love what John Wesley says. This was kind of his motto, and you can see how it pushes against the motto of our our culture. John Wesley said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Gain all you can. Work is a good thing. You should work and earn money. That's good. You need to support your family. You need to support other people. Gain all. You, in fact, if you're not gaining all you can, you have nothing to give. So gain all you can. And what I like, too, about Wesley's motto is it doesn't limit it to a percentage. It doesn't say, give your 10% and you're done. Right? But it allows each one of us the freedom to go to God's Word, to listen to the Spirit, and say, this is what I can do. Gain all you can. Save all you can, right? The Proverbs, the the ant in the book of Proverbs who saves up, he works so that he can store for the coming winter. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. Gain all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. What's strangely missing from Paul's thing is there's no mention of a tithe. And actually, there's no mention of a tithe in most or or any of, uh, of Paul's literature, especially not in the New Testament. Because what happens, the transition from old to new, is that the, um, the tithe, well, and actually the tithe was a lot larger than 10% in the Old Testament, but it kind of went away into volitional giving in the New Testament. And so what you have in the New Testament instead is probably closer to John Wesley's principle. And so gain all you can, save all you can. Give all you can. Are we in imminent danger, Colin? Severe thunderstorm. Thank you. Zach and I were talking this morning. Why do we have a siren for a severe thunderstorm? Um, Like, don't scare me just to tell me it's going to rain really hard and thunder and lightning. If you're going to scare me, scare me for a good reason. All right. Gain all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. A few things. Um, In 1 Corinthians... We get, the, we get the principle of give regularly. So there's another takeaway. 
Paul talks about, uh, Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 6 that as you gather during the week, when you gather on the first day of the week, everybody should save up a little bit as he's able. And so what he tells them is go ahead and start collect saving and collecting now so that when I come we can distribute the gift and it won't be this kind of last-minute deal. But what we have, and he, and he says in that, in that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, that this was a regular practice in the churches, that the Corinth was not the only place that he said do that. So it was a part of worship. The reason that we pass the plate, this isn't commanded by Scripture, but the reason that we pass the plate in worship service is not because we have a captive audience, right? Like, you're there, so we're going to put this gold plate in front of you and make you put money in it, right? But because we really do believe that this is a part of worship. That sacrifice, as we gather together, sacrifice is a part of worship. That we glorify God by giving what we can. And it's likely that in Corinth they were paid on a weekly basis. And so Paul says, when you meet together on the first day, determine what you're going to take out of that. Determine what you're going to save out of that and give it into the collection. All right? So give regularly. And for those of you who do, um, by the way, I should mention that we finished 2016 on a good note. Uh, we finished in the black. Um, and so thank you for your gifts over the course of 2016. Right now, we are not a church, well, other than, other than this construction project. Right now, as far as our ministry budget goes, we are not in dire straits. Uh, we've been there before, and who knows, we may be there again. But right now, we're not, and that's a good thing. And so thank you for your gifts. And... If you have heretofore not given regularly, consider it. It's interesting that Paul says, when you gather on the first day of the week, right? That the inclination in Scripture is not, all right, let's see what we have when the month is over and that's what we'll give. But Paul says, no, 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 go ahead and take out what, go ahead and take out what, what belongs to the church. Go ahead and take that out first and give it on the first day of the week. Make your decision what you're going to offer then and give it on the first day of the week. Uh, or every two weeks or every month as, uh, as your pay allows. So um, the second thing is this, give to the poor, right? So the church gives regularly and we give to the poor. Um, that's, that's clear from Second Corinthians 8 and 9 and from a host of other passages. God is the defender of the weak and he uses his church to help do that. And then in 1 Timothy 5, we give to missions and we give to ministry. What we want to do, it's not maybe quite where we are. I probably spent, we, we probably spend as a church, well, if we could spend zero on overhead, I'd be just as happy with that. But that's impossible. So I want you to know that our bent in, in church budgeting and spending is ministry. That's, we, we want to turn as much of a dollar as we can back towards the ministry of the church and ministry outside of the church. Years ago, we made a commitment as a church to give 10% of our giving, of your giving. When you give to the church, we take 10% of that and we commit it to missions. So, we're tithing off your giving to missionaries. We want to turn at least 10% of that to missions outside of the church. That's local and that's global. Beyond that, we want to do a significant percentage towards ministry. So, that's paying pastoral staff. Of course, that's paying support staff, uh, overhead, but even providing things like plates and cups for growth groups, um, trips for youth ministry, nursery workers. All of that is part of your giving. And so 
all of that, we try to look at every single dollar as a ministry engine. That's what we want to do. So we give regularly, we give to the poor, we give for missions and for ministry. Paul finishes uh, in verse 15 as he wraps his whole plea up to them. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The root, the foundation, the ground of all Christian giving is the giving of God himself. And that giving is most supremely centered on and found in the Son, Jesus. That we give, not simply because God has filled our bank accounts, we give not simply because God has filled our bellies, we give because God has filled the gap that our sin created. That because Jesus has come, because God puts his generosity and love on full display in the person and work of the Son, we give. As Paul says, we are compelled by the love of Christ. Because God has so loved us, we turn and we love others. And so this morning, if you wrestle, as I do, with having a generous heart, Spend time contemplating the generosity of God. Particularly the generosity of God and the gift of His Son. His indescribable gift. The word there is our word for hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is when somebody's using way blown up language to describe something. Right? Well, that's how Paul talks about the gift of God. It's indescribable. It's over the top. I wonder, do you, is that how you see God? Do you understand that God has been over the top with you in giving you his son? Come again to the cross. Come again to the empty tomb. Look again to the Holy Spirit. Look again to the future where Jesus will return. Look again to the gospel, the good news that sinners are made right with a holy God in Jesus and fathom the depth of God's generosity and love towards you. That, and that alone, is what will loosen my grip on my stuff and allow me to give it away for the glory of God and the good of other people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you most of all for your indescribable gift to us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have nothing to fear. We thank you that it's just a severe thunderstorm. And even though it's getting harder to hear, uh, that, Lord, we know that you are watching over us and taking care of us. And so, Father, we thank you for all of the gifts. We thank you most of all for the gift, Jesus, who clears us, makes us right, and puts us on a new trajectory. God, I pray that in the coming year, in 2017, that we would be an increasingly generous people. That I would be an increasingly generous person. 
That we would be able to give more to missions and ministry. More to the poor, to those who are suffering. For those of us, Lord, who struggle to make ends meet, I pray that you would meet them with the grace and peace of Jesus that that their shame would not rule them, but that they would know your love and forgiveness, that we, all of us, could be transformed from reluctant or begrudging givers into cheerful givers. And because of your promise to us that you will take care of what we need, your grace is overflown to us so that we can overflow in grace to others. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being so kind to us. We can scarcely believe it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.